You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In a list of the world's hardest jobs, flying fighter jets for Ukraine's Air Force must rank near the top. Western defense systems help, but most of Ukraine's armaments are Soviet-era. We talk to one pilot about what he's up against when he's up in the air. And all told, the world speaks more than 7,000 different languages. They vary markedly in syntax, rules, and almost everything else. But one feature, one word in fact, links most of them, and it starts at home. But first. Two weeks of climate negotiations have come to a close in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This UN Climate Conference of the Parties, or COP, ran into nearly two days of overtime. But eventually, something of a deal between global governments was struck. This outcome does move us forward. An historic outcome one that benefits the most vulnerable all around the world. The talks wound up focusing on the question of loss and damage caused by extreme weather events. Inside the conference, envoys and bigwigs haggled, and outside, protesters demanded compensation for the historical emissions of richer states. Well, they got that finance, or at least the start of it. Richer countries are now talking about a fund to help shield poorer ones from the worst that climate change will bring. Today, here in Sharm el-Sheikh, we established the first ever dedicated fund for loss and damage, a fund that has been so long in the making. It's a struggle every time to get any kind of agreement out of all of those countries, from the rich historical big emitters to up-and-coming economies, to low-lying states that might disappear altogether. But even by COP standards, this last-minute scramble was messy. Frankly, Jason, it was a really difficult second week of negotiations, a particularly difficult last 24 to 48 hours of negotiations. Catherine Braik is our environment editor. I've been to seven of these events now, and it was... I'd say the least transparent process that I've seen so far. Certainly the observers were kept very much in the dark of what was going on right up into the last moment. Some of the delegates even seemed quite confused about the process really just in the last few hours. Having said that, there were some quite remarkable achievements, some departures from previous trends. I'd, I see two positive things for the climate coming out and one one real loss. 
Well, let's talk through those. What what are those two good and one bad things? The first win and the one that everybody is talking about was an agreement to a new finance package on what's known as loss and damage. And then the second was actually the idea that in order to properly address the different elements of climate change, there's a need to rethink, rejig the global financial system. And then the loss really was that in the midst of all of this, the momentum that was generated in Glasgow towards increased decarbonization, accelerated decarbonization was lost. So it sounds like the two positive things you mentioned are about money, about throwing money at the problem. So for 30 years, the idea of loss and damage has been swatted away. And this is the notion that when countries are hit, for instance, by an extreme weather event, they suffer losses and damages. And if that extreme weather event was either caused or made worse by climate change, then those losses and damages are a direct result of climate change. It's important to note that they don't need to incur just after an extreme weather event. You can get slow onset loss and damage. And an easy example of that is what happens as a result of sea level rise, for instance, in a country losing territory or agricultural land. Now, losses and damages are felt all around the world. But the big issue here is the point that many of the countries that are suffering the greatest losses and damages, are poor and didn't contribute to or didn't contribute very much at all to the problem of climate change in the first place. And therefore, it is incumbent upon the rich world to help with losses and damages. And so what we got in Sharm el-Sheikh was a first real conversation about this with all of the actors present, including the rich world, and a first real acknowledgement that this is an issue. And actually, importantly, that if it's not addressed, then it will ultimately contribute to global instability. So what did that first real conversation lead to then in, in terms of prescriptions? The solutions that were brought to the fore were, on the one hand, what the Europeans referred to as a mosaic of solutions, so pots of money offered here and there, but also different and innovative solutions for debt relief. And then under the auspices of the UN, what the poor countries really wanted was a new fund for loss and damage that would be supplied by a wider donor pool and that would go, and again, this was kind of contentious, to what they termed the most vulnerable country. So there are still some things to resolve here, but it sounds as if this loss and damage issue is is at last solved? Uh, I wouldn't say that, no. I think realistically, particularly when countries have been scrabbling down the back of the sofa for some pennies to pay for adaptation, the odds that suddenly vast amounts of money, we're talking about many, many billions here, are going to flow towards the poor world for loss and damage would be optimistic at best. What was agreed within the formal process of the UN was that there would be a new fund, that it would be supplied by what they called a wider donor-based questions there over whether or not countries like China and Singapore would contribute to it, and that it would go to vulnerable countries or the most vulnerable countries which is a way of saying countries like China, for instance, might not benefit from that. Potentially the more impactful elements of it happened on the sidelines. And that was a whole conversation about innovative ways of financing, in fact, not just loss and damage, but climate action in general in poor countries. 
So this is the other half of the throwing money at the problem. Yes. And there we had another conversation that has been bubbling for a very long time also come to the fore. And this is the suggestion that the global financial system needs to be restructured or rethought in order to address the all-encompassing crisis that is climate change. There were a number of big ideas here. We heard stuff about debt for nature swaps. We heard ideas about debt for climate. The idea that, for instance, in order to address loss and damage, lenders might, in the aftermath of an extreme weather event, suspend a recipient country's debt repayments for a period of time. And then there was also a discussion of something that's been referred to as the Bridgetown Initiative. This is something that was actually floated around the time of Glasgow last year by the Barbadian Prime Minister, Mia Motley. But they require a commitment and they require political will. And, and the idea here is to overhaul the system of international financial institutions. So we're talking here about the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And amongst those proposals, the one that my financial colleagues believe is most likely to succeed is changing the rules that operate these institutions to expand their lending capacity so that basically they can take greater financial risks and potentially unlock an additional $1 trillion as a result of that. But you mentioned there was also one sour note to this COP as well. One thing that's really important to remember here is that losses and damages are the things that you want to avoid as a result of climate change. And so what you cannot lose sight of if you're serious about the climate issue and you want to spend the least amount of money on it is that all of this comes back to cutting emissions. And I realize that I sound like a broken record here, but unless you mitigate costs on adaptation and also costs on loss and damage are just going to keep spiraling. And that's why COP27 in many ways ended up being a real disappointment. And this was highlighted in very strong terms in the final closing plenary speeches, in particular by Alok Sharma, last year's COP president. Emissions peaking before 2025, as the science tells us, is necessary. Not in this text. Clear follow-through on the phase-down of coal, not in this text. A clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels, not in this text. There was, after the momentum that was generated in Glasgow last year, a sense that many of the delegates who were pushing for greater action on mitigation had to do a lot of running, a lot of hard work, just to stay in place, just to keep the momentum and just to keep the agreements that were made in Glasgow last year, not actually to push them forward. So a lot of delegates came to Sharm el-Sheikh hoping that there were going to be further targets in terms, for instance, on peaking emissions before 2025. They did not achieve that here. So on balance, then, something that has come to the fore that long needed to and something that was getting towards the fore that didn't get any further. Well, what's what's your upsum here? Was this a good cop or a bad cop? It was a difficult cop. And there's one warning, really, that I think should come out of that increased focus on loss and damage. And that is not to fall into the trap that people once fell into over mitigation and adaptation of thinking that it's either or. 
Now we've got three pillars to climate action. We've got loss and damage, adaptation and mitigation. And all three of those are inextricably linked. And all three of them need attention in order to avoid the most catastrophic consequences of climate change. Catherine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Flying a fighter jet in Ukraine's Air Force is punishing work. But old technology makes a difficult job even harder. Difficult job because you're permanently ready to go 24-7 in any, uh, in, at, at any time, in, in any uh, conditions. That's Juice. He asked us to only identify him by his call sign. The economist Piotr Zalewski recently spoke with him about the challenge of fighting off Russian missiles. Juice says that he often has to sleep in his flight suit, and that's because the Russians often attack at night. So he has to be ready to go whenever the alarm sounds or he gets a dock on the door. Like a command control officer just uh, getting in, in the room, like, hey, you're, you're next. <laughs> okay, and uh, you have just a few minutes to get in the cockpit. Juice told me the worst part of the job is having to spend hours in the sky uh, chasing missiles or drones, only for each of them to elude you. Well, you're trying to kill cruise missiles, but there's no result. Actually, it's it's very bad experience. Uh, it's uh, hard emotions. Uh, you're executed more and more. Missions, uh, you conduct more and more sorties, but uh, you're not able to, to save these lives. And even as we were talking, an air alarm went off. Piotr, what are pilots like Juice up against when they get in the air? So over the past month alone, Russian cruise missiles and Iranian-made Shahid-136 loitering munitions, or kamikaze drones, have killed some two dozen people in Ukraine and damaged up to 40% of the country's energy infrastructure. And on November 15th, Russia unleashed another barrage of cruise missiles against targets across Ukraine. The good news for Ukraine is that its air defenses are getting better at knocking down these missiles and kamikaze drones. On October 10th, uh, nearly half of the missiles and drones that Russia launched against Ukraine managed to dodge the country's defenses. And less than a month later, which is to say by the end of October, Ukraine could claim to be shooting down over 80% of the drones and missiles fired its way. What are they using to shoot these drones down? For the most part, they're using Soviet-era weapons. But increasingly, they have begun to rely on new weapons brought in 
by Ukraine's Western allies. In early October, Ukraine received an advanced IRIS-T system from Germany, and I was told that the one deployed so far has shot down every projectile in its path. An S-300 battery from Slovakia has also proven effective. And on November 7th, Ukraine's defense minister confirmed the country had received two NASAMS systems developed by a Norwegian aerospace company and Raytheon, the American aerospace company. Now, NASAMS are ground-based air defense systems, and they are believed to be highly effective against the kind of threats that Ukraine is facing. Conversations with Ukrainian officials suggest that they have already been deployed for some time, and America is trying to speed up delivery of six more. And what do these NASAMS do for the Ukrainians? So right now, Soviet-era equipment still makes up the bulk of Ukraine's air defenses. And with the old technology, the risk of human error is high. While reporting for this story, I met up with uh, Yuri Ignat, who is the spokesperson of Ukraine's Air Force. And I met him in a busy cafe in Vinnytsia, town in central Ukraine. Okay. He complained that while Ukraine was getting better at intercepting Russian missiles and drones, it was doing so for the most part by using weapons uh, from the last millennium against weapons developed over the past couple of years. Ukraine's radars have some trouble tracking cruise missiles. And the systems are notoriously difficult to operate. Uh, the NASAMs, on the other hand, are much more automated systems. An air defense officer who had actually taken part in NASAMs training in Norway told me that within a few minutes, he was able to at least grasp how the system works. And the biggest advantage that these new weapons could offer Ukraine is a chance to create sort of the air defense shield over parts of the country, especially large cities. Currently, instead of a single air defense network, Ukraine has a hodgepodge of systems that cannot exchange data. And systems like the Buk M1 or the S-300 can only shoot at the target that shows up on their radar. Systems like NASAMS and IRIS-T are interoperable which means that a target detected by one can be destroyed by the other, although each launcher can only engage targets out to around 40 kilometers. And do we have a sense of what the Russians are up to in response to this evolution? It seems the Russians are trying to come up with new ways to bypass air and missile defense systems in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say they are aware of Russian plans to acquire ballistic missiles from Iran. The deputy head of Ukrainian military intelligence and others acknowledge that Ukraine has no effective protection against the Iranian ballistic missiles. These types of missiles strike targets at much higher speeds than cruise missiles or drones. These missiles are notoriously difficult to intercept. They are believed to be similar to the Iskander missiles Russia has already deployed in Ukraine. And to give you an idea of how unsuccessful Ukraine has been when it comes to intercepting these missiles, the Russians launched at least 25 
Iskander ballistic missiles in Ukraine in October. Ukraine says it was able to intercept only three. And the country is equally defenseless against the hypersonic Kinzhal missiles Russia has mounted onto some of its warplanes. What's stopping the Russians from deploying these missiles? The one thing mitigating against widespread use by the Russians is a scarcity of these missiles. One official from Ukraine's military intelligence told me that Russia has probably 120 Iskander ballistic missiles left. Other sources put the number of Kinzhal missiles at around 40. The trouble is that if Russia were to acquire, let's say, hundreds of these Iranian ballistic missiles, that would allow it to redouble its attacks. You know, Ukraine needs to defend itself against the threat it already faces, and that is the threat from cruise missiles and uh, these kamikaze drones. And for that, it needs more air defense systems, more NASAMs from its Western allies. But it also needs to be able to defend itself against future threats. And for that, it will need weapon systems capable of shooting down ballistic missiles. And there is only so much that Ukraine can do with old weapons. All right, Piotr, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was a good one. Yummy. Mama? Maya, did you see Mama? Across the globe, new parents excitedly await their child's first word. For months, babies babble along until one day a noise comes out that sounds curiously like speech. And at this point, joy and excitement tend to follow. Each of the world's languages has its own words and rules and flaws and phrases. But there's one common thing that links almost all of them. The term for mother usually begins with an M sound. English has mother, mom, ma, mum, and all those words. Um, of course, many European languages have mama in some form. Lane Green writes the Economist Johnson column on language. But even completely unrelated languages quite strikingly have ma-type words. Chinese Mandarin has ma, and the Arabic word for mother has an M sound, um. You just see it all over the world in really strikingly different languages. Are there any theories as to why this is? Well, there are two ways that it might have come about. And one idea is that it could have come from the earliest language, uh, that these words would have existed when humans first started talking, when they were all still in Africa, and then uh, traveled with humans to the far reaches of the globe in the human exodus out of Africa. According to this hypothesis, one language that undergirded uh, all of the world's languages that is the predecessor of everything from Chinese to Arabic to English. But by and large, this school of thought is pretty rejected by most mainstream linguists. And the reason is quite simply that language changes far too fast for us to be able to reconstruct anything with any kind of certainty. If you look at English just 1,000 years ago at the time of Beowulf, say, you can see that the language is totally unrecognizable. And that's pretty typical for how languages change quickly. 
So we just can't be confident that going back 100,000 years, we can see anything resembling today's words. And so what is the other school of thought? There are a lot of consonant sounds that are very common across the world's languages. And a couple of candidates, like a buh sound, muh, puh, tuh, duh, and kuh, that is the sounds represented in English by B, M, P, T, D, or K, those show up a lot more frequently around the world's languages. Most languages will have all of these or nearly all of them. And the reason is simple. They're quite easy to make. When babies are first making sounds, they'll just kind of vocalize fairly randomly. They go through what's called cooing and then babbling. At the sort of earliest stages, they'll make sounds that are mostly vowels because they're not stopping or controlling the airflow. And so the vowel that most comes out first is something like ah or uh, because it doesn't require moving the lips around or the tongue around with much control. Now, if you make an ah sound and then you close your mouth, what happens is this. Um, the air keeps coming out, but it doesn't come out your mouth any longer. It starts coming out your nose. And sure enough, when you close your mouth and make a sound out your nose, you are making what linguists call a bilabial nasal because it's using both lips and your nasal passages. But it's what the rest of us know as the M sound, that very same sound that shows up in the words for mother all around the world. So the words for mother are quite similar. What about the words for father? The words for fathers have a lot of commonalities around the world, too. Uh, babies can either keep breathing out their nose when they shut their mouth, or they can figure out that they can stop the air entirely. If you stop the air with your lips, it'll sound like this, ah, bah, and you'll get a kind of a B sound. Or if you turn off your vocal cords for a second, you'll say something like, ah, pa, and you'll get a P sound. And this is a very easy sound for babies to make, too. And this is almost definitely the reason why so many names for father around the world have some kind of P or B sound in it, from Papa in English to Ab in Arabic or Baba in Mandarin. Another easy sound to make is kind of a T or D sound. Once a baby gets control of their tongue just slightly, then if you touch it to the back of the top of the teeth, you'll get a T or a D as you stop the airflow. And sure enough, all over the world, we get words for dad or dad or father uh, with a T sound. So dad and daddy in English, Tatai in Tagalog, or Taita in Quechua. But most people, of course, move on from calling their parents mama and daddy or Tata. What about that leap to more formal language? Right. The words we use to refer to mother and father are an oddity. For example, the fa sound in father is not quite as easy to articulate. You've got to touch your bottom teeth to your top lip. And the th sound in mother and father is even rare. It's actually quite unusual in the world's languages. People who speak French or German or Italian, they really struggle with that the sound. It's even a sound that English-speaking babies, surrounded by English all their lives, will acquire a master later than others. So people who work on speech therapy have a schedule by when children typically master consonants. And sure enough, they might not get around to getting that the and the sound right until they're about five, six, seven. And many children struggle for longer than that. So this helps solve the mystery of why, despite the fact that parents are formally known as mother and father in English, so few children really refer to their mother and father directly. So we've talked about the rules. What about the exceptions? Are there languages that defy this pattern? 
Yes, there are languages that defy the pattern, but not really way out there. For example, Marathi spoken in Western India has the word I for mother. So there's no ma sound to be found, but the vowel sounds are among the first sounds that babies produce, and they're easy ones to do. So it's really not a great exception to the rule. So it's hard to say anything is true of every single language in the world. This is a debate in linguistics about whether there are true universals to every language. But in this case, we find at least something very close to a universal. And I'm, I like to think it's rather heartwarming to find a commonality embedded in another human universal. This one not about language, but about the love that babies inspire in their mamas and their papas. All right, Lane, thanks so much for stopping by today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.